Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today, I catch up with class of 2017's Kirsten Chapman, refugee coordinator for World Relief. How Mrs. Haas's WeGo Global Club set in motion a career helping individuals fleeing from danger and finding safety in the resources to begin a new life in the United States. Joining us from the class of 2017 is Kirsten Chapman. Kirsten, what do you do? I am a refugee caseworker for World Relief. So Kirsten, walk us back. How did you maybe begin to kind of think that that maybe this was maybe a route that you wanted to, to go in your studies and your career? Yeah, that's a really good question. I since I was young, I have had an interest and a passion in other cultures. Um, I went to a bilingual school from elementary school on, and then in high school, I took some Spanish classes as well. And I was a part of We Go Global as well. And so with Mrs. Hawes, I don't know if she still works there or not. Is, but... She's an absolutely love that you said this. Oh, oh I'm yeah. so glad, Mama Hawes, if you're listening, shout out to you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was kind of my first taste with other cultures and understandings. And from there, I just kind of grew hungry and hungrier and wanting to learn more. And so that's kind of where it began in high school, at least. So. So tell us where you went off to school. Yeah, so after that, I spent a semester at Wheaton College, and there I was studying cultural anthropology. And then after kind of a turn of events, I ended up transferring to George Fox University, and that's out in Oregon, out in the forest there. So it's about 40 minutes south of Portland, and it's just beautiful. And so there I studied international studies uh, with a minor in Spanish. So, What's it like living in as a transplant out in the Pacific Northwest coming from Chicago? It was pretty sweet, I gotta say. It was beautiful. The weather is much milder there because you're close to the ocean. And so I just kind of bloomed into myself a little bit. It, I just em embraced the forest and the nature and getting to hike and being in a different place. I think it was a delight to have years where I had the freedom to explore. And so I really enjoyed that. Well, what were the type of uh, courses that you took at uh, George Fox? Yeah. Oh, I all sorts. I took a lot of classes in anthropology, which is the kind of study and understanding of people groups. And then I studied uh, uh, quite a bit about politics as well. Um, and so, yeah, just I've, I just kind of continued that passion and interest of really wanting to understand people and why people believe what they believe and do what they do from different locations and places and how being from one place or another affects who you are as a person and what you believe and what you're following. So what was some of like your favorite uh, readings that went along with that? That stuff 
also fascinates me as well. I was like that someone who's read more deeply on those uh, topics. Like, what were some of your favorite either studies or uh, case studies where uh, that uh, that that came from uh, the study of anthropology? I think one one book that stands out to me right now is oh, I'm forgetting the full name of it, but I think it's like the spirit. Uh, falls and catches you or it's something it's something of that nature but it's about a Hmong family that came to the United States and their challenges that they faced with coming from where they did and um, just how difficult it was for them to understand and to have to really leave a bit of their culture behind because it wouldn't necessarily fit to life in the states and so that was interesting it, obviously that that book seems like it has so much uh resonance and probably the type of things that set you up for what you do now is as well. yeah that's a good point true yeah. <laughs> true yeah. i wouldn't have thought about that but you're right it does yeah so uh so you you um did you have any uh study abroad or any type of like how do we say this uh, internships uh, that while you were uh, out in uh, in Oregon? Yeah, I did. I had a few. So I got to study abroad in Ecuador for a semester, and that was just amazing. I lived in Quito, and um, so that's the capital of Ecuador in the city. And while I was there, I got to attend some classes as well as I did an internship at a house for. Um, girls who end up in really difficult positions in life. And so it's like a safe house for them. Wow. Um, and it was really just a, looking back, I'm just so grateful for the experience I had with not only um, just like building relationships with these girls, but then also learning more about refugees while I was there. Um, I imagine some listeners would know some more about this, but in uh, Ecuador and other countries that are close to Venezuela, there's a lot of Venezuelan refugees that have um, escaped to live in these countries and kind of um, find their find their way and um, find places of refuge. And so I remember every day I would see people living on the streets, people trying to ask for food or help or something because there was so little capacity for the country to respond to such a large humanitarian crisis. And so that was my first experience seeing how big of an issue this was or just how much of a struggle that these people were facing with just even surviving in a country um, that isn't necessarily facing a huge crisis themselves, but are just figuring out how do we respond to all these people in need. Um, and so that was just amazing. How did you uh, kind of find strength yourself to really absorb such trauma and difficult situations that other people are in that you aren't necessarily in, but you also have to find ways to kind of keep yourself strong so you can be strong for them what how did you what's how did you prepare yourself for that and how did you how did you learn from that wow that's that's a really good question 
You know, at first I did not prepare myself well. <laughs> I think at first um, every story that I would hear, especially from the people that I got to know that were living in Ecuador, they almost felt like just like these daggers that would just kind of pierce into me of these stories of, oh, just horrible things that they've experienced or stories of survival. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe they've experienced such things. And um, I, I didn't exactly at the time have a word for what it was like to experience and be around such uh be around trauma survivors and now i understand it as secondary trauma and that it's very possible for people in all sorts of jobs or roles that they play that they can ex unfortunately that they could experience it it's kind of like um the person that you're with that is the trauma survivor they're like you can envision it almost like they are a burning house and you are the observer or the person next to them. And when you're with them, listening to what they're experiencing or you're walking with them, it's like you walk into that house and then, you know, later you leave. And when you leave the house, you're still covered in ash. And so it's learning how do I, how do I take off this ash? How do I brush it off? Otherwise, it will just stay there. And sometimes it gets in your lungs as well. And so it's harder for it to come out of your system. So now um, it's, I, I think how I learned best how to respond to that was really later in my master's program that they helped better equip me for it. Wow. What a powerful metaphor that you just provided there. It's incredible. Thanks. Yeah. Wow. I guess this would be a, a, another uh, kind of bene benefit. Obviously, the humanitarian uh, um, cause that you, that you were there, but I was wondering too, like how much did that also entrench your strength in Spanish uh, while you were there? It, the, I mean, are you now mm -hmm. absolutely like, nearly fluent now as a result? <laughs> yeah, I would. I would say so. Um... While I was there, I was living with an Ecuadorian family, and so they didn't speak a lick of English, and so yeah. it was just Spanish all the time. And I was grateful that since I was young, I had experience, but now this really did push me to speak it all the time. And I remember some days, oh my goodness, the whole day of speaking Spanish, I would get back to my room after being out, you know, at the with my internship there with the girls all day helping and supporting them and then I'd get home and I'd just think oh my gosh I'm so tired because <laughs> your brain works so hard sure. to, to translate and interpret everything and then you were to, to respond and yeah but it was it was so good though too and now with the clients that I work with as well it I'm so grateful because I'm able to speak with some of them too in Spanish. It must be such a relief for them to yeah. facilitate, you know, something as, as easy as a toothache or whatever it may be. It's like now mm -hmm. you collapse the time to solve the problem. So, so quickly. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, so, so you were there for a, a semester. Do you remember like what was one, maybe one of your, like, it, it seems like it was such an amazing experience. What was your best day? Oh, my best day. That's a good question. I think 
Mm, okay. My best day would be um I remember it was a it was a day off from work and it was a day off from kind of doing things and I went out on a hike. There's these parks not too far from the center of the city that you can just take a trolley out or a bus and I went and I just went on this sweet quiet hike through the mountains because there it's like 8,000 feet foot elevation and so there we're surrounded by mountains and so we got to we got to summit some of them but like I just went to one of the hills and I just hiked up there and there were alpacas just kind of wandering around and it was just such a beautiful moment of wow what a gorgeous place this is it's it's filled with um just so much beauty but also so many different stories and lives and just so many people that are living lives completely different from mine own and I just get a moment here where I get to see and be with them and learn and listen and I think it was just one of those moments where it just kind of hit me and it was just beautiful that I just had that space to recognize that and yeah so even though it wasn't anything super crazy it just was a beautiful moment for me to have that's amazing yeah i mean so was that your which year of uh was that like your junior or senior year yeah that yeah that was my junior year yeah so that was good and then my my senior year i had uh two i had two internships with world relief after that so so you have two internships with world relief Mm -hmm. you graduate now and you did 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 you have to then continue your studies at back at Wheaton to kind of uh, uh, get back into the world of relief for your job now? What's what was the path after that? Mm, yeah, so it was um, right after I graduated because I graduated a semester early. I spent the second the second part of the year doing an internship with World Relief, and that was looking at. Uh, helping a savings group for people to be able to make bigger purchases. So helping support people to buy houses or to buy cars. And so I was helping with like the finances of that and figuring out. And um, But how I found out about World Relief is kind of just in itself, it just kind of fell from the sky. It wasn't anything that I was necessarily like knew about before this it just kind of came out of nowhere after I graduated because I mean with an international studies degree there's and it's very it's a vague it's a vague degree so there isn't necessarily this oh you're gonna do this after you graduate so at that point my only I guess only mm, piece or interest that I was going off on was my interest in wanting to understand more about displaced people groups because of my experience in Ecuador and then also with with my anthropology classes. Um, And so that's how I began learning about some resettlement work in the States because there are refugees among us here. And so um, then I found out about World Relief being in the area, and so that's how that 
first internship started. And then while I was in that internship, I found out about the program at Wheaton, which is the, it's humanitarian and disaster leadership. And that just, just this ignited a fire in me. And so I then applied for it and did that this past year. So, so what, what are the types of, I, I, I can imagine that there are so many facets to a program like that because there's the mm. logistics and then there's the policy and there's law and everything else uh, in between. What were the types of, like, how, how is that program set up? Yeah, I appreciated that with this program, they really did touch on a lot of sides of relief and development work. And so it was like you, I, I took a whole bunch of different classes. Like there were ones that were on specifically like project management. And then there were ones that were on understanding more about disasters. There was a class, one of my favorite classes was on um, migration and just um, force, forced migration and refugee studies um, and then we also did ones on understanding how to manage nonprofit work. Um, and so it's not a, a program focused so much on policy as much on, at least for me, my experience with it is very much like action. They talked a lot about kind of ground up work, as well as we did talk some about systems thinking like top down work. But for the most part, we we didn't really talk as much about policy. Did, was there a like a big project or like a capstone uh, thesis kind of project that you worked on at the end of the program? Yeah, we worked on it. It was so great. We worked on we created our own nonprofit, and so we it. I so when I say we, it was a team of four of us my whole cohort is was filled with people from all over the world it was just an amazing experience and just i learned so much not only from my professors but also from my colleagues there i mean i had friends from all over and so my team we worked on creating a, a mock nonprofit for uh, providing services for refugees in Turkey, in Istanbul. And so in this project, we just had the opportunity to study and learn a lot about what it looks like to build and create and manage a nonprofit. And uh, I mean, it's just, there's so much that goes into it, but also seeing how this is actually possible and that it makes it feel that even though these problems in the world, the things that we face, you know, anything from humanitarian crisis to natural disaster to man-made disaster, those big problems that you can see that there is, there is opportunity and there are doors open for action and that you can respond, that you can do something about it because they can sometimes feel so big that you don't even know what, what to do or where to begin. I like that optimism that uh, you you're saying there with that. The man man made problems can also have man made team solutions. Yeah, uh, with all you're so so right. 
just a, a quick uh, follow-up question on the project. Did they give you parameters for that? Like, did they say like, this is your budget? This is, this is where you need to be. This is the cultural sensitivities. Like, what were their boundaries to the project as it was presented to you? Not too many boundaries, mostly just time boundaries, to be honest. Um, but I liked that they gave us the freedom to do that research and to figure out what would be appropriate in this situation. Because you're absolutely right. Like, I wouldn't want to just waltz into some project not recognizing how there are so many so many things that you need to be aware of before you begin. And so I think for our project, I appreciated that we wanted to be culturally appropriate and sensitive to the people groups that are living in Istanbul. And so by doing that, we were really wanting the nonprofits itself to be mostly managed by people that live there and people that have experience and that it would be guided by community leaders. So that's kind of one of our more specific examples of what that looked like. Now, you was this done hypothetically or were you actually in Istanbul? No, no. I It would be pretty amazing to go to Istanbul, but no, it was not. Thankfully, my um, one of the girls in my group, she had lived in Istanbul for a while, and so she could pull from her own experience there. Um, so that was that was really good to have that. But it would be pretty amazing to actually visit. That's a great city. I've been there once. It's been it's really nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, so okay. So you you then graduate uh, with this this uh, next um, degree. So how do you then uh, how do you then make the leap into world relief? Yeah, so I during my studies there as well, I continued doing an internship, but this time I was under a caseworker, um, and so I just had the experience with that where I would work, uh, I think once or twice a week, and. I would help and support her with different tasks that she needed done. And during that time, I, I really did enjoy the conversations that I would have with her clients. And I liked that there were ways that I could help support and take actions to support these people. Um, but then after graduating, there was a still a big question mark of where I was actually wanting to go entirely. Um, at that point, I was uh, I was in the middle of my also my engagement, and so I was figuring out with my fiance what we were gonna do and where we were gonna live, and so it ended up working out that my fiance found a job locally, and so then I started to look around here, um, and I saw that they were hiring for the same position for casework. Um, and so I applied and now I work at the office in Aurora for that. So what is a typical day like for you? Mm -hmm. You know, that's a really good question. Every day, I think it, what is a treat about this job is every day it is different. Every day there's there's going to be something different that's happening, whether it be a, a home visit, a meeting, taking a client to an appointment, you know, it, it just looks different every day, which is kind of fun. 
how does how does like a so how does the work uh find its way to you i guess that's the other way of asking that question like so do you open up your emails that okay we have a client uh or we have a new prospect uh how how exactly and i might be using the wrong terminology as well so oh, yeah i always say this are there other people that do your position as well are there or are you the only one out of that office that does this yeah yeah this um, so I'll I'll begin with kind of the bigger picture of things. So I am one of two caseworkers at the World Relief Aurora office. And so we are both focused on what's called initial resettlement. So we help support refugees that come to the general area for six months. And so how I find out about that they're coming is I get a notification about, oh, this is their arrival date. And I get that from my manager. And then from there, usually it depends on their arrival date. Sometimes I find out, you know, three days before they're coming, oh, they're coming. Or sometimes it's a couple weeks before and then we have to figure out, okay, where are they going to be living how are we going to be providing food and housing and other necessities that they would need before they arrive? And then with that, I also am given their more details about their case. So who is this person? Where are they from? What are their specific needs, if any, often medical needs or something? And then from there, we figure out what needs to be done. And so that's one big piece of my job. And another piece is um, after they arrive to the States, I provide a, a list of different, um, uh, different things that I do for my clients that I'm required to do. So anywhere from the visit that I have with them the day after they arrive to um, helping them get their social security card, to uh, doing lots of home visits to check up on them, to helping them move into their house or into their apartment. Um, so we, as a team, because I, even though I am a caseworker, I work a lot with all of these other teams as well with World Relief that provide other services to the same client. Like I have an employment specialist that helps them to find jobs. And then I also have a children and youth specialist that helps support the children and get them into school. Um, that we all try to work together as a team to be able to, you know, um, orchestrate all of these things that they will eventually be doing. And so how my role is kind of described in the office is I'm kind of like the quarterback. I'm the one who's kind of helping manage what's happening, what's the play going to look like for this client or that client. Um, and so it it definitely keeps me busy. So that's why it's each day it can be a little different. Um, often I go based on uh, the the you know time limit for a client where you know based on by a certain day something specific needs to happen for them and so that's how I often prioritize certain events that oh if this is the deadline for this client I'll try to do this then 
Um, and so I'm generally the one that comes up with the uh, schedule for my own week and what needs to be done. But then oftentimes, even when I schedule things, you know, it um, things come up for my clients that are you know, an emergency or something. And then I have to reprioritize and figure out what the day looks like. Um, so I guess that's a, a better understanding of what my day to day looks like, but also knowing that this job is always moving. And so when you're working with people that have real lives, real stories, that has had real experiences that are all different and unique, the way that I respond has to be different and has to fit to what would be best for them. So that is also kind of like a, like a puzzle for me because I need to figure out what would look like the best um, plan of action for this person or this family because everyone is different. But at the same time, everyone is kind of beginning from the ground up, you know, beginning lives in a completely new location, in a completely new country, um, often, you know, not knowing the language and um, not liking the food here, just things like that. In, in, in your observations so far, what are what have been for the families that are being uh, resettled and, and all that, what are the the most helpful things that really kind of get them on the right foot moving forward that you've noticed that if if we invest in this now with them, this is going to be for their best transition moving forward? Some things that we have done that I've found to be really helpful is right off the bat when they get to the country we apply for their benefits so we apply for making sure that they have snap so food stamps as well as tanf which is like the cash version of that as well to have money and then we also apply for their medicaid so they have quick access to being able to get these resources so medical care as well as food to be able to survive. So just even the basic necessities like that right off the bat is super important for all of our clients. Um, and then I always, when I do my, especially when I do my next day home visit, we do, I, I it's a very long visit that I have with them, beginning all the way from welcoming to the to the country to then explaining who I am, who we are. I then provide them also a packet of resources. So it has all of our faces of people that work in the organization, our names and our phone numbers and emails. So they have access to resources. Um, so then I also provide them with a phone and a SIM card so they can easily have um, access to resources here in the states as well and so right off the bat i do this for the purpose that then they have these resources available and then also hopefully can begin for them feeling empowered to be able to do this that 
okay, if I have a question, I can text this person and ask them. Um, so I find that if you can provide people with resources quickly, like like these resources for for food, for medical care, and then also for um, having resources to ask people questions, it can help ease people into feeling like, okay, I can do this. I can live in this different country, even though I don't even know where to begin, that at least there's something that they have as like building blocks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, like just having those needs secured and then knowing how to get immediate clarification upon there being a problem. That makes so much sense that you... Thanks. Um, no, I, I also just wanted to add on to that. I think one other aspect that is for for my clients, but then I also think of for any other person that is just beginning in, in their life or beginning somewhere that it's so important to also have a space to live. And so we also coordinate and find housing for our clients. And so we then provide rent for their first three months in the United States so that they don't have to worry about having to pay for that right off the bat. Because like with anyone starting from from the ground up, there's a lot to do and a lot to learn. And so being able to provide a, a space for you to do that and not have to worry about where am I going to go? What am I going to do? that at least they have a place to live for the first three months. You clearly have been witness to a type of incredible culture shock that probably many of your clients have experienced. Sure. I was wondering on the other end of that, you probably have been inspired by a type of strength and resolve that you have seen from them as well. I was wondering if you can tell me about one of your favorite stories of something that you've seen so far. Oh, man. Okay, I'm going to pull from from two that are most recent because uh, there's just so many that come to mind. But I think one of them was, I I'm, I wish I could be more specific, but I have to kind of be vague to well, of course, protect of course. people's identities. But one of my clients, they, um, for they lived in a Middle Eastern country and. Um, they experienced great persecution from where they lived before. And so then they had to escape to another country. And while they were living in this other country, there was, again, a, a lot of um, uh, what was like racism or persecution for them as well there too, because they were from a different country, a different nationality, that um, they were not treated as equals and um, because of that, this this person really struggled with living there because there was no place for them to actually live. And it was um, a person that was a bit older in age. And so they really struggled with, you know, they didn't have a house. And so for 10 years, they were, you know, living on the streets and just living off of scraps and just were so greatly affected by the cold every night. She, the person just always talked about the cold being just so 
bitter and awful and that then just they finally after 10 years of being on this waiting list they were able to be resettled in the United States and so I I do want to mention that in the world there's over a hundred million people that are displaced and of those a hundred million people there are about 40 to 50 million people who are considered refugees, which are people that have fled their country um, for fear of persecution based off of um, race, ethnicity, religion, um, gender, uh, all, all of those aspects. And so of that percentage of those 40 to 50 million less than 1% have the opportunity to actually resettle in another country. And so even though I'm working with hundreds of people here, it's still such, it's a fraction of the number of people that are still waiting or on the list or desiring to be resettled somewhere else. And so um, that, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but so for I was just really grateful to hear from this one client and so grateful that they made it here. Um, another family of that I have gotten to know, they, they came from a Latin American country and um, they really uh, struggled because of health issues from their original country and um, because the health system was very corrupt and falling apart and... Um, so they, uh, and then all of a sudden the government, while they were there, they stopped providing them necessary medications that they needed to survive. And so then they escaped to another country. And while they lived at this other country, while they were there, they were being persecuted by gangs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, then they were just um, in this place where they were receiving death threats and um, had multiple occurrences of um, the gangs coming and attacking. And so um, then they got connected with um, what's called UNHCR. It's the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, And so that's how most people begin in the process of being resettled. And so this family, they got connected with UNHCR and Um, through many, many, many interviews and talks with, uh, the, the, the people that work in our professionals, uh, for this, they, the UNHCR and the people a part of that determine whether this person is actually a refugee or not. And then once that's determined, then they join a long waiting list of actually being resettled. And so... Um, It's kind of almost like a lottery. You never know when you're going to be resettled. One family of mine, they um, waited in another country for, since 1995. Wow. They waited to be resettled. And so I now have... I now see how much of a struggle it was to survive in a different country. Oftentimes the country that people are waiting in, they are ostracized to 
places that are where other people that are the, from their country don't want to live. And so people end up with kind of the scraps of land or scraps of places. And so that's just also a level of um, difficulty with um, and also just patience and empathy that I have with clients that are just have experienced so many years of waiting and waiting for having an opportunity because so many are just in this place of liminality and um, oftentimes as well cannot get a job because they don't have documents or they don't have their um, or they don't have a right to work in another country without XYZ. And so, yeah. I just, I'm trying to wrap my head around how one could <laughs> hope and hold on to it for since 1995 being on that list. I mean, it's incredible. How oh my goodness. When this family came, we all, when they arrived and they, we, I, cause I, I didn't know about this until I had my first meeting with them. We all just kind of sat and cried and it was I believe it. Just a beautiful moment and now I I mean if if you want to know now it's it's kind of a blessing. They live in this beautiful house. We were able to work with this family that they decided to move to another state and so they were leaving their original house here and so they pretty much donated their house to our organization. Wow. So we were able to house them there and it was just oh, so good. So like I'm sure that people would love to know like what's the best way to help your organization or uh causes like this that really cuz I think people want to donate money but uh, what are the other ways in which they could do that as well or maybe is is money the best way uh, to provide support? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, there are so many ways to get involved in this. I like kind of what I shared before with these problems that we're facing in the world, how big they are. Sometimes it can be scary t to know how to step into them and like, you know, how could my, you know, one one person, myself alone, what can I do to be able to make an impact because it feels so big and endless. But thankfully, I mean, with whatever organization you choose to be a part of, but if if you have an interest at all in resettlement or supporting refugees here, I mean, there's so many volunteer opportunities. We have different roles that you can play all the way from helping pick up families from the airport and bringing them to where they're living to being a friendship partner or an English tutor um, or a health advocate. Um, we also have a team of these guys that are some of our volunteers that they help us to set up Wi-Fi for people in their houses so that they have access to the internet and so that then they can learn some digital literacy. Um, yeah, those I think are great ways aside from, I mean, with, <laughs> with any nonprofit, obviously money is always a blessing when you're, when you're given that, yeah, sure. but aside from that, like giving your time or talent or 
um, even like treasures. So like donating things, um, we provide all of the housing supplies for people when they move into their apartment or house so that people don't have to worry about those sides of, um, of just being able to have a livelihood here. So we go solely based off of donations because unfortunately there is not enough money to go around for us to just be buying and buying and buying new um, furniture and new things. So we go only based off of donations. Yeah, that's 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 good to know. Yeah. Um. So, Kirsten, um, where do you see yourself in five years? Ooh, in five years, I see myself either working for World Relief or some other refugee organization. I think working a little bit in more of a leadership role being able to help support um, others either here in the States or abroad. Um, yeah, but still being involved with supporting displaced people groups. Yeah. Sorry, that's a bit vague, but no, I, no, I get it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Kirsten, this has been uh, such an inspirational, thoughtful uh, interview. I can't wait to share this uh, with everyone. But I was wondering, as we conclude the interview, what tips for success would you give to current Wildcats? Mm, that's, a, that's really good. I think I think I kind of want to pull from my clients a little bit because the people and families that I work with, I just admire so greatly how resilient and strong these people are. I think it's easy to think of... Um, you know, the circumstances that you're placed in, the challenges that you face, how easy it can be that that could bring you down. Yet, I am just amazed to see how strong families are and how strong these people are. And so I think I want to encourage um, students that may be listening to this that, you know, depending, no matter the circumstances that you face, that you are strong enough to endure it you are strong enough whether it be with support of others or um or something else that you are strong enough to endure this and that there is there is hope and that even when it feels so dark that there is hope and so holding on to that hope even though in the moment it may not feel like there is hope there so yeah, I think that that's, that's kind of how I would encourage the students. That was so great. Well, Kirsten, this has been absolutely great. I am so excited for everything that you're doing uh, for oh, us in the community. And, uh, and really, it's just been such an such a inspiring uh, talk today. So thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and spread the word about We Go Places by sharing our interviews with other Wildcats. If you want to search past episodes or stay current, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere where you can get your podcasts. Just search We Go Places. You can follow We Go Places on our Facebook page as well, and also Twitter at We Go Places Podcast. And if you know a former Wildcat who would be a great guest, send me a direct message on Facebook, Twitter, or by school email at at Turnbow at d94.org b-t-u-r-n-b-a-u-g-h at d94.org 